Hi, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1? Now, I see some new faces and just want to say hi and welcome. Uh, but also to let you know what we're doing. Um, usually at Calvary, the, the, uh, the way we teach is always verse by verse through each book. I've already taught Philippians verse by verse in depth. And I was praying about what to do next. And I feel like the Lord told me to teach the book but this time doing it topically around the theme. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy. And not just joy, joy in adversity, since Paul wrote it from prison in Rome. And if you can have joy while you're in prison, you got something. The Lord's working, all right? So what I did was I just took a concordance and isolated every place in Philippians where the word joy, rejoice appears, studied that passage to find the context, what it was connected to, and those be, uh, become our main points. And so we've already looked at joy in fellowship, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Joy in proclaiming the gospel, chapter 1, verses th uh, 12 to 18. Then we looked at joy of faith, chapter 1, verses 25 and 6. And now we are on the fourth uh, main point in our study, joy in unity. Now this covers chapter 1 verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 2. We've already read those verses several times, so I'm going to let you read them on your own. But uh, seven times in these verses, Paul, using various phrases, uh, expresses his hope that the Philippian Christians would walk in unity with each other. He talks about one spirit. He uses the phrase one mind twice. Fellowship of the spirit, like-minded, same love one accord. All of these phrases are Paul's way of talking about unity among not just the Philippian Christians, of course he wrote it to them, but all of God's people. All of God's people. Now, why was the subject of unity so important on the heart of Paul? He's writing from prison. And if you're in prison and you're writing to churches that you've planted, you don't waste time on small talk. You express what is the most uh, a burden on your heart. And unity comes right to the forefront, and the question is, why was the subject of unity so important to Paul? Well, as we have said before, it was important because he knew that it was essential for joy, which is what we're looking at, right? But also that it was essential for dealing with trials, adversity, and the one we've been looking at, it's also essential for victory in our battle against the devil. Guys, the bottom line is, we are stronger together than we are alone. A classic passage on that idea comes out of Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 to 12, where Solomon said, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But if someone who falls is alone, he is in real or she is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Now, we've been looking at the subject of joy because it is a very important subject. And one of the greatest passages on Christian unity, I'm sorry, but look at the subject of unity, which brings joy. Uh, one of the greatest passages on Christian unity in the New Testament comes out of Ephesians chapter 
4. If you would turn there, please. We've been looking at this passage for a couple weeks. In Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 13, Paul talks about the basis for our unity with one another as believers in Christ. In verse 3, he talks about unity of the Spirit. And then in verse 13, he mentions the unity of the faith. Now, we're currently looking at the first one, the unity of the Spirit. So let's read verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 4, where Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul speaks of the importance of maintaining our unity as Christians. But then in verses 4 to 6, he goes on to give us seven spiritual realities that make up our unity and bind us together in Christ. Let me read to you verses 4 to 6, where he goes on now and says, There is one body and one spirit, uh, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So, as we have pointed out in these verses, Paul names seven spiritual realities. I say spiritual realities because uh, they can't be seen, touched, or anything like that. You only know they're a reality because, first of all, you know when you accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit moved in, and He gave you the nature of God. And you were connected with God at that moment in a very real way. It's like when you got saved. Um, usually, not for everybody, but I think usually, when you pray to receive Jesus, at that moment you say amen. The room doesn't darken. Light doesn't come down from heaven. You don't hear the soft singing of angels. Well, often you don't feel anything. But almost immediately, some things start to change. I know when I got saved... Almost, I didn't feel anything. I didn't hear anything. But like the next day, I started to feel different about things. I had a tremendous desire to open the Bible and start reading it. I knew I needed to get to church, and I wanted to get to church. Immediately, I, things in my heart began to change. I, I began to want to get away from the things I had been doing that were not right, and gravitating to things that I knew would honor God. So these are spiritual realities. You have to be a born-again Christian. I'm not saying just go to church. You've got to be a born-again Christian to begin to experience these realities. And so Paul mentions seven uh, realities here in verses 4 to 6. That he talks about one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. And we've kind of started looking at the fourth one last time, one Lord. Now, guys, Christians are bound together by our mutual love for and obedience to one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we don't worship many lords and many gods like pagan polytheists. Now, these were very popular in Paul's day. The Greco-Roman world was very polytheistic. In fact, the Greeks had pretty much deified every emotion, everything you could think of, and turned it into a god. 
So all the emotions, love was a god, and hate was a god, and war was a god, and the planets were gods. I mean, you know, everywhere you looked, there were gods. And they all had their altars and statues. Of course, the West got away from all that when Christianity started to spread. But now the West is regressing. We're, we're kind of moving into a post-Christian era. And as you regress from the true and living God, guess what? All the paganism and the polytheism starts to come to the forefront. We see it in our country today. People worshiping a lot of different gods again. You know, there was a time, as Francis Schaeffer said, an incredible apologist for the Christian faith. He said there was a time when if you said the word God in uh, America, everyone knew who you were talking about. But today, when you say the word God, you have to define what God you mean. It's different today. But we don't worship as Christians many gods, many lords. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, But for us there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created, and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. That's where we're coming from. Now, author Warren Worsby had this to say. He said, and I quote, This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, lives for us, and one day will come back for us. It is difficult to believe that two believers can claim to obey the same Lord and yet not be able to walk together in unity. Someone asked Gandhi, the spiritual leader of India, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? He replied, Christians, acknowledging the lordship of Christ is a giant step towards spiritual unity among the people of God, end quote. And as we said last time, guys, the word Lord, it's not a name, it's a title. A lot of Christians use the word Lord as if that's Jesus' name. No, his name is Jesus. Lord is his title. The Greek word is a word that means your master. Someone who has control of your life. Someone that you are uh, obedient to. Uh, that you are, you know, again, he's the one who is in control. So a lot of Christians who use that term but don't really mean it the way the Bible intends it. That's why Jesus said to a would-be group of disciples one day, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, doing the will of God doesn't make you a Christian, but it does indicate you are a Christian. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Obedience doesn't make you one of his sheep. It proves you are one of his sheep. Something to remember. But unity. Unity. Um, very important concept. Another author put it this way, said, and I quote, It's difficult to believe how people who claim to believe in and obey the same Lord can't seem to walk in unity with each other. Churches have been shattered by division over issues as small as the color of the carpet in the fellowship hall, and as large as the direction and philosophy of a church's overall ministry, end quote. And guys, that brings up something we threw out to you last week and said we'd come back and revisit it today. 
it, it puts its finger, this author puts his finger on something we need to address, something we mentioned last week that is a valid criticism by unbelievers and skeptics of Christianity. You say, well, what is it? Here's how they feel, and something we need to address. If the same Holy Spirit fills all Christians, binding us together with each other in unity as one body devoted to one Lord, then why is there so much division in the church? You know, you go to some of these towns. Maybe you've seen this. You drive into town and there is the First Baptist Church or the First Presbyterian Church. Drive a little farther, oh, the Second Baptist Church. That's the name, the Second Baptist Church. You drive around, there's a third, there's a fourth. Philadelphia, there's a tenth Presbyterian Church. Now, I don't know how all those churches got started. I have to imagine that some of them got started because a small group in one of the churches, the First Presbyterian Church, didn't agree with everything the church was teaching, had their own views on certain doctrines, and so they broke away to start the Second Presbyterian Church. And eventually you had a group in that church that wasn't completely happy with some of the doctrinal positions, and so they broke away and started the Third Presbyterian or the Third Baptist Church. Look, don't think the world isn't watching this. Do you know the cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses point to this as proof that the unity in their group is proof that they are the one true church? Why? Well, they go back to John 17, Jesus' prayer the night before his crucifixion. And the whole prayer is about unity among God's people. But also Jesus said in verses 20, 21, in other places in that prayer, Father, I pray that they would be one with each other, even as you and I are one, that they would be one with each other. Now, if you read the whole context, he was talking about their mission, how that very soon he was going to turn over the mantle to them, and they would go into the world as he had done. He was going back to the Father soon. But they would go into the world and, and preach the gospel to everyone. And he knew that Satan would come against them big time. And so he prays, Father, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to keep them from the evil one while they're in the world doing the work I've called them to do. And so the Job's witnesses and others point to the unity in their group and say, look, Jesus, we're, we must be the true church because here we are in unity and all you Catholics and Protestants, you're all fragmented and, divide, and divided up. This is proof, one of the proofs, we are the true church of God. Can I just say something? Don't confuse forced uniformity with spiritual unity. Every cult in the world has forced uniformity masquerading as spiritual unity. I mean, the cults demand absolute, unwavering, monolithic uniformity to the doctrines and rules of the group down to the smallest detail but it isn't true spiritual unity coming from the Holy Spirit. I don't think anybody would look at the cults and say, well, they have true spiritual unity. They have unity, but it's a forced unity. I've mentioned this group before, but most of you remember the uh, Heaven's Gate cult back in 1997 and how they were a group that believed that they had been planted on the earth uh, by aliens from the mother planet 
I forgot what that was. Anyways, uh, they believed that as the Hale-Bopp comet was coming close to the Earth, behind it was hiding the mothership that was going to come take them back to their planet, and so on. So they wanted to rendezvous with the mothership, which meant they all had to commit suicide so that their spirits could be released from these bodies that were given to them so that they could function on the Earth. So I watched a documentary about these folks. And the night before, in fact, they all, uh, two by two, they stood in front of a camera, two by two, like there was like 40 or 39 or 40 of them. And they all gave a little testimony. And most of it revolved around how we're the one true church. And all, all these Christians are interpreting the Bible wrong. Only we have the truth. And each little two people would do their little thing and give their little farewell address. Then they all went out to dinner. Now, they interviewed the waiter that waited on them that night. First of all, they walked in all wearing the exact same outfits. Sat down. They all ordered the exact same entree. I think it was chicken pot pie. They all ordered the exact same dessert. I think it was cherry pie. They all ordered the same exact drink. And then they went back to their commune, and they drank poison, laid down, and died. Now, that might be an extreme example of what I'm saying, but it does drive home the point. These folks had monolithic uniformity with each other. It wasn't spiritual unity. We know they were a cult. But this is the mindset. This is how the devil gets into people's minds. And they begin to think because, hey, we are one with each other. Yeah, to the point that you won't even eat different foods or wear different clothes or what. Look, the world attacks our unity. And, and the world tends to lump in with us. Here's the problem with the world. They don't know any better. They see the world divided into two groups, the secular and the religious. Now, they don't realize that among the religious, there are the true and the false. They just lump us all together. So the cults and all these other so-called Christian groups were all the same in their mind. They don't realize that in the church, so-called Christian church, are many, many people, but not all of them are truly saved. So inside a church, you have the true and the false, the true and the counterfeit. The world doesn't see that. They just see people calling themselves Christians. They want to lump us all together. Let me just explain, though, because you understand this. But we need to understand that diversity of thought and beliefs don't automatically equal division. Unity and diversity are not mutually exclusive of one another. We, evangel uh, we evangelicals can differ on non-essential doctrines and still be in unity with each other when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. In other words, Christians can disagree over things like the timing of the rapture. Is it going to happen before, during, or after the tribulation period? That's a running debate, right? Christians can differ on whether or not the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still around today, or, they, or did they pass away with the first, end of the first century? There are some who believe the millennial kingdom is not literal, it's allegorical. And I've talked to them about this. I believe the thousand-year reign of Christ is literal. I believe the Bible teaches that. But there are 
good brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who believe, no, it's all allegorical. Now look, we can believe different things about doctrinal non-essentials and still be in unity with each other in Christ. But the world looks at these differences of opinion as true division in the church. It's not. Also, when it comes to why there is disunity and division in churches, remember what Jesus warned, that Satan would sow the tares among the wheat. Again, he would fill churches with counterfeit Christians. Tares are wheat. Excuse me. Tares are weeds. They're called darnell. Okay? The problem with the tares is that when they start growing alongside the wheat, they both look exactly the same. It's not until they mature enough, the wheat matures enough, where the, the green heads start to appear. The fruit, right? Because the weeds can't produce any grain, any fruit. I went online, to I googled this and went online one day to see this, and I saw the darnell. What I didn't expect to see was the wheat... And it had the grain on it. And when the grain appeared on the wheat, the wheat did what? It bowed over. It bowed over. Because those who are truly saved are going to bow to the will of Jesus Christ and going to offer him praise. They're going to bow in worship. I don't care what churchgoer you're talking about. If they're not born again, they might think they're saved, but they're a terror. The good news is terrors can get saved. I guess at one time I was a terror. I went to church here and there. I wasn't saved. But God is gracious. God can turn terrors into wheat if you receive Christ as your Savior. That's another reason why there's so much division in the church. You have all of these false Christians... Um, side by side with true Christians in the local churches. Uh, this is especially true in these last days uh, and, and has led to all kinds of fighting and division in the local church. It's the mixed multitude situation or phenomenon, whatever you want to call it. What, what is that? When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Bible tells us a mixed multitude came out with them. So you had the true people of God coming out of Egypt but along with them came a group of unbelievers mixed in with the true mixed multitude, right? Why did they come out of Egypt? I don't know. I guess Pharaoh and his armies had just gotten their teeth kicked in by Jehovah God. And so now who wants to hang out with the losers, right? You want to hang out with the winners. I mean, Jehovah's bringing fire down from heaven and all kinds of wild stuff. I want to see what he does next. So all these unbelievers, thrill-seekers, came out of Egypt into the wilderness. They were the first to murmur and complain. Because you know what? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, with God, I didn't sign up for hardships. I didn't sign up for this stuff. I wanted God to entertain me. I wanted to get some thrills. A lot of thrill-seekers that still follow Jesus today, they're the mixed multitude in churches today. It's all about what God's going to do for them, how God's going to bless them, how God's going to make them excited and feel right, and so on. 
Of course, the thing about murmuring and complaining, it's contagious. And so eventually, the murmuring and complaining that were, was of the mixed multitude spread to the real people of God. And God had to wipe out many of his own people who had been infected. He wiped them out in judgment in the wilderness. Infected by these mixed multitudes. That's another reason why there's so much division and fighting in the churches. you got a lot of unbelievers fighting for their way and thinking they know better than God how to run the church and we ought to have women pastors and we ought to have gay pastors and we ought to be, uh, you know, a woke church and this and that. And that creates a lot of problems, right? Furthermore, another reason there is division in churches is because they are loaded with carnal Christians whose pride, selfishness, and childishness are a big factor in all of the division and infighting in many churches. And in fact, it characterizes the same things that were going on in the church of Corinth back in Paul's day. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3 quickly. I'll just read you the first three verses to get a flavor of this. I'll read it to you the NLT, New Living Translation, where Paul said, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you, I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as those who were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk and not solid food. Couldn't get into the deeper things of God. You were like spiritual babies. I had to keep things very basic uh, in your teaching, in my teaching of you. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. Verse 3, for you, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous uh, of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you, aren't you living like people of the world? And I'll stop there. You can read the whole passage. Now, guys, some of this I have to lay at the feet of the clergy. If pastors are not going to feed their people faithfully from the word of God, people aren't going to grow. This is one of the big faults behind the seeker-sensitive uh, movement. That was a big deal. It's fizzled out. Still churches practice it. But the idea was we have to bring all these unbelievers into the church to evangelize them. So we got to have skits and, 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 and secular music and all kinds of things, and we'll give them the gospel every week. Well, that's, the gospel is awesome. But the church, Ephesians 4, is a place where the saints, the true Christians, are to hear the word of God, are to grow in their faith, and then go out into the world to evangelize. I'm not against giving the gospel in church to end the service. I, I do that often. Because there are unbelievers, and we want to touch them for Christ. I just don't gear the whole service around unbelievers. Because you're here, you need to be fed. We have people in our church that have been in seeker-friendly churches for 20 years. And they couldn't take it anymore. They were starving, they said to me. I had to find a church, we had to find a church that was teaching the Bible, which is kind of sad. Every church isn't teaching the Bible. They give it lip service, but they don't often really teach it. So I do blame the clergy for some of this, although some people are just plain lazy. So they don't really grow. I know some. They, I know they're Christians, but they're just kind of lazy, and I'm saved, that's all I care about, kind of an attitude. And they don't really put any effort into their walk with God. Now, when the rapture happens, I believe they'll be taken because we're saved by grace. But they'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be ashamed to face him. 
I don't want that. I hope you don't want that. But guys, listen, even among those who are genuine Christians, who have walked with Jesus for many years and are mature in their faith, even among these, there can still be disunity and division in the local church. In Philippians 4, Paul addressed two ladies in the church there in Philippi that, for whatever reason, couldn't seem to get along. He said in verse 2, I plead with Eurodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. You're Christians. What are you fighting for? Now, were these women just a couple of immature troublemakers? No. Paul makes it clear in verse 3 that they were committed, serious-minded Christian workers who had labored with Paul for the glory of Jesus and the work of God's kingdom, yet they were still having trouble getting along with each other. So the question remains, and often the criticism by unbelievers is valid. If we all serve one Lord as Christians, why is there so much division among those who are called by his name? I mean, if we are joined together by the same Holy Spirit, which we are, and are part of Jesus' body on the earth, why is unity with one another so hard and division so common in local churches today and it's seeming to get worse? I mean, why do churches split? Well, we talked about it earlier. But why do churches split? Or for that matter, why do marriages fail? When the Bible teaches that God joined both the man and the woman together in marriage, making them one with each other, much like he joins Christians together in one local body in Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because we're all different. We're all different. But somewhere... At some point, we got it into our heads that unity is only going to become a reality if we're all exactly alike and agree pretty much on everything. A lot of Christians feel this way. So you'll see them with a church of 10 people, usually a couple families, because, you know, we're on unity with each other. Yeah, you got 10 people, two families, and then they start fighting. You know, you're never going to find that kind of perfect unity. We're all different. True unity doesn't happen when we force each other to become cookie cutters of one another. Remember that unity isn't uniformity. True unity comes by loving each other for who we are without trying to make each other carbon copies or clones of ourselves. Guys, we don't, many Christians don't realize that diversity is actually our strength. Diverse, you can have unity with diversity. It is our strength. Paul the Apostle keyed in on that in 1 Corinthians 12 and said, look, let me use the human body as an example. The human body has many parts, but all are necessary if that body's going to function the way God designed it. Can you imagine, Paul said, if the whole body was a big nose or a big toe? How would the body function? Our diversity is actually our strength, is, was his point. But also, God has allowed us to be so different from each other 
First of all, he loves diversity. The body of Christ is the ultimate diversified unity. But God purposely didn't make us all alike because it's easy to love people who are exactly like we are. It's a lot harder to love people who are different from us. They look different. They have different likes. They may disagree on some things we believe in. Maybe their politics are a little different, but they're Christians. Look, diversity forces us to love one another and makes us better people for it. When the Holy Spirit is moving, guys, there is always going to be diversity. People getting saved you never thought would get saved coming together in one church. Many of you have seen the movie, The, the Jesus uh, Revolution, right? It was a, a, a movie about um, the Jesus movement back in the 60s and 70s. Calvary Chapel came out of that movement. Pastor Chuck Smith, my pastor personally, was very instrumental in promoting this, uh, the, the gospel and, and being a part of this movement uh, in California. Those of you who have seen the movie or read the book, The Reproducers, when the Holy Spirit began to move and these hippies started coming to church, you know, long hairs, you know, uh, tie-dyed shirts, bell-bottom jeans, barefoot. And here they are showing up one day on a Sunday and you have a church of people that have been Christians probably all their lives, grew up in church. The women are wearing dresses and little hats and the guys are wearing three-piece suits. And here comes these hippies into the pews right next to them. Well, a lot of those folks couldn't deal with this and they left the church. But when the others started to see the love in these kids, their hunger for the word, how respectful they were to the older people of the church, many of them realized this is a work of God and we need to embrace it. And that's when songs like the song Love Song made popular hit the charts. Um, little country church on the edge of town. People finally getting along. Long hair, short hairs. I forgot all of it. People sitting together just loving the Lord. That's when you know the Holy Spirit is moving. And may God do that here. Be prepared for the day when people walk through that door that don't look anything like you. Maybe a guy wearing a dress, but God's tugging on his heart. Or people with purple, orange hair. How are we going to handle that? We'll see. If the Spirit is really here and really filling our hearts, we will embrace them like future brothers and sisters. We'll go up and give them a big hug maybe and say, I'm so glad you're finally here. I've been praying for you to come. What? You've been praying? Yeah, we've been praying for you guys to come. You know? I don't want a church where everyone looks the same, talks the same, dresses the same, and believes everything exactly the same when it comes down to the smallest and even non-essential doctrines. Remember, God made all of us in his image and likeness 
And when we try to remake others, especially in churches, into our image and likeness, guess what? There's going to be a lot of conflict and a lot of disunity. You know, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their, their disunity. They thought they were something special. If you studied the letter to the Corinthians, they thought they were the elite church in the area. And yet Paul rebuked them and said, look, you're not, you are not a strong church. You're not even a mature church. With all the carnal, with all the division and fighting, you have carnality, not maturity. This is true whether we're talking about a family, a church, and especially a marriage. You know, couples fight and split up often because one or both spouses are trying to force the other into their mold instead of simply accepting them for who they are, for who God has made them to be. Example. So you have a woman, uh, a husband, who is very introverted. He doesn't like to be in crowds. He, he, he gets he gets very uh, stressed out in social situations. His wife, bless her heart, is a little social butterfly. She loves to be around people. And she's always dragging him to these affairs where, you know, a lot of folks, and she wants him to meet her friends, and she's trying to force him to be more outgoing and so on. And he's sweating bullets, and he's got anxiety, and he's not enjoying himself. But she wants to, you know, force him to be a better man. Or you got a guy, a husband, who loves sports. Absolutely crazy about sports. Always dragging his wife to the games. But she's more artsy. She's more artsy. And she goes to the game because he's twisting her arm and she sits there miserable. You know what? Why do you take a friend and go to the game? And let your wife take a friend and go to the art exhibit. You don't have to do everything together to maintain your unity, right? A lot of couples take a break once in a while. That promotes unity. I don't know. I'm not talking from personal experience. I'm just saying. I mean, there's a balance. If the wife is a spendthrift, she's really uh, wants to control the money really well because you know she's kind of managing the household budget and and that, and she you know has every penny pretty much you know spelled out and all and, and he's a spend he likes to spend money it's not wrong to sit him down and say honey we need to come to some terms here i mean i'm trying to save money you're spending it like crazy it's not helping our family then you talk and you work through it and hopefully maybe she'll be a little more flexible on some, some going out to eat money and going to a show once in a while and he'll be more uh responsible with spending money so he's just not spending money on a whim all the time, that kind of thing. I just believe that this is one of the main reasons why there's so much conflict in marriage. It's due from one spouse trying to force the other into their mold. Again, guys, force, there's no joy in forced uniformity. Now, having said that, look, I think, um, I think as spouses, we need to work on each other, on ourselves, I should say. We need to work on ourselves. I know I'm not perfect. I know that there's room for improvement, right? So, you know, we, we shouldn't just accept ourselves for who we are and not try to become better versions of ourselves. It's something that, you know, I want to do. You know, I guess Phil 
2.0. That kind of my wife's still waiting for that upgrade. Um, I think we should work on ourselves to try to be better versions of ourselves. I just find, guys, that men become better men when they have a wife that loves, supports, encourages, and cheers them on when it comes to change, rather than when a wife is barking at them, nagging them, and trying to force them to be the husband they want them to be instead of letting them be the man God has made them to be. And the same thing is true with husbands who are very controlling and do the same thing with their wives. You know, not letting this poor gal be the woman God's designed her to be. Maybe she's not good in some areas of finance. And so you need to take the finance. I've always done the finances in our family. Primarily because when we were starting off in ministry, we had no money. And I really didn't want my wife to worry about paying the bills. So it was my job. And I prayed over the bills. And, and God always took care of us. But if I was lousy with numbers and money and she was an accountant, I would turn it over to her. Use your strengths. Don't fight each other's weaknesses. Use your strengths. Now, I'm blessed to have a, a wife who has never nagged me. But she has encouraged me to be a better man. And without her encouragement over the years, I wouldn't be the man I am today. Not perfect yet, but better than I was. And, you know, a lot of it is because of the way she loves me and encourages me. I don't want to let her down. She's so good to me. I don't want to do anything that would disappoint her. I don't want to do anything that would, um, I don't know, just, I, I want to be the best man, best husband I can be for her. Because she's so good to me. Loves me, encourages me. Disunity and fighting result when because of our pride we believe that everyone needs to think just like we think talk just like we talk look just like we look and believe everything exactly that we believe down to the smallest detail or else we can't have unity with them we are not the lord people don't need to obey us or make us happy there is only one lord the lord jesus christ and he is the only one we need to obey and please. But let me tell you this. If I pour all my energy into pleasing Jesus, I'm going to be exactly the man he wants me to be. And my wife and my kids and my grandkids and my church are all going to benefit. Because I'm going to be taken on my cross, dying to self, putting others first, serving others, starting with my wife. I'm going to be the best person I can be by just focusing on Jesus primarily and doing everything that will make him happy. Jesus said, I do always the things that please the Father. I want to say I do always those things that please the Father and the Son. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Again, guys, I'll just say this in closing. When we humble ourselves, obey Jesus, and put others before ourselves, we often... Not always, but often, we'll have peace with people. And that will result in unity, and unity will bring joy. It's a big subject, an important subject. And if we're going to benefit from the whole subject of unity and derive the joy that God intended for us to enjoy through it, 
Gotta know what it is. And often, guys, I'll be honest, what stands smack dab in the way of unity is selfishness. Pride. That's what we have to examine ourselves first. As we said last week, the only person God really wants to work on is you, me. When I pray, I can't pray really, oh God, will you help my wife to change? You know, she's got these little things that bother me. Would you? God would say, Phil, it's like when Jesus said to Peter, come follow me. There's a cross in your future. Starts following Jesus, turns around. What about this guy? What, what about John? Don't worry about John, Jesus said. I'll take care of John. You just follow me. And that's the adv advice Jesus gives to all of us. The only person he wants me to worry about is me. In the sense that I follow him, I obey him, right? And if I do those things, every other relationship in my life will come into balance. It's an incredible thing to see almost as a byproduct of me just focusing on Jesus and doing what pleases him. Amen? Amen? All right, we'll pick this up, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you've reached down and touched us and opened our eyes and saved us and made us new creations in Christ. And now, Lord, give us grace to die to self, take up our cross and follow you, that we might be unified with others who... Maybe, you know, before we got saved, we would never have hung out with, but now they're our brothers and sisters. And we want to love them and uh, serve them and so on. Give us grace to do that. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing. These studies in your word, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name.